All right. Good morning, everyone. We can go ahead and get started, even though Lutherans don't like change. We've somewhat changed the seating format here. Um, back to kind of how we did it before, which facilitate a little more conversational environment. So if you'd like to sit up at the table, you're welcome to. If you want to sit back there, of course, you can as well. We are um, going to re-engage our study of Pastor Wolfmuller's book, Has American Christianity Failed? Let's have an invocation and prayer first. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. We have been taking a look at Scripture, and in particular, last week we left off on this, this idea of efficacy, which Wolfmuller says is one of the major failure points of American Christianity, their view of Scripture. And again, by efficacy, or is are the scriptures efficacious, we mean, are they actually doing something? Can they create and sustain and deepen and broaden faith? And as we saw from the scriptures themselves, the answer is yes. God's word is a living word that's active. It's not like our words, which tend to be much more descriptive. God's word, when he says, let there be light, there is actually light. And so he creates light out of the darkness. Paul uses this exact analogy for how he creates faith out of unbelief. By the power of his word, he calls forth our faith. We also touched on this idea, and it's where we'll pick up formally today on page 48, touched on this idea popular in American Christianity. The uh, Bible, I think is an acronym, B-I-B-L-E, Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. How many of you have uh, been taught that at some point along the way? I, I had heard it. Okay, so let's, let's see if Wolfmuller likes it or not. <laughs> All right, page 48, right in the middle of the page. American Christianity taught me that the Bible is an enormous instruction book. I cannot imagine a more terrible description. Well, you have your answer. <laughs> who, treasures, who treasures instruction books? <laughs> who keeps instruction manuals on their shelf to read to their children at bedtime. Instructions can be helpful, but to call the Bible an instruction manual is to entirely miss the gifts that the Holy Spirit has for us in the scriptures. Our culture is obsessed with self-help. We are all therapists, all on the hunt for the good life, all wanting things to be better, and we want the Bible to fit this template to be the greatest self-help book ever. The Bible, though, decrees self-help, or decries, I don't, how do you pronounce that? Decries? Decries, yeah. Decries self-help. God helps those who help themselves, is not in the scriptures. The prophets would call such sentiment idolatry. The Lord is my helper, Hebrews 13, 6. 
Okay, so the problem is when we take this idea of an instruction manual or a self-help book and we lay that over the top of the scriptures and then read the scriptures as such and then from this can, can flow ideas of like, well, what does it mean to me? How, does I, how do I apply this to my life? Not so much as what's the original meaning and then how does that apply to my life? That would be a fine, but sort of more in a, in a weird, fluid kind of way of like, how does, you know, sometimes, sometimes I think we've all probably even done this thing where we just like go like this to the Bible and then just go, okay, and then you read it, and then you try to interpret this in light of the events of your life. Um, yeah, this is not good, not a good way to read the Bible. <laughs> um, and this, you know, this, this is a kind of uh, confusion. So we want to avoid this, and we want to see the Bible on its own terms. Now, if we go over to page 49, I'll let Wolf Mueller do the heavy lifting here in terms of his critique of the Bible as instruction book. Top of 49, instruction books are all about what we do. Self-help is all law. But the scriptures are a gospel book, full and overflowing with promises. If we read the Bible as an instruction book, then we will find only law. If we read the Bible like a self-help manual, then we totally miss the gifts, the promises, the kindness of God revealed in the scriptures. If we treat the Bible like basic instructions before leaving earth, the central teaching of the scriptures, the forgiving death of Jesus, is lost. The pages of the Bible are doused with the forgiving blood of Jesus. Okay, so another way to kind of analyze this would be if it's a self-help book, then it's really all about me. Yeah, it's really all about the individual reading it who's needing self-help, who's needing guidance. And I think Wolf Mueller's point here is that this isn't a book about you or me. This is a book about Jesus and what he has done for you and me. And just that shift in emphasis is powerful enough to change everything and change the way we think of the scriptures, the way we think of Christianity. And actually, if we let it, this is a powerful enough idea to change our perception of the world. One of the healthiest things. Well, let me put it this way. Um, in that uh, second paragraph that we covered on page 48, notice what Wolfmuller points out there. We are all therapists, all on the hunt for the good life, all wanting things to be better, and we want the Bible to fit this template. It's the greatest self-help book ever. Now, really analyze the need there, the, the perceived or felt need, that we want the good life and we want all things to be better. Isn't that true? But the subtle, the subtle idolatry there is that we think we know what in fact is good, what in fact is better. And if we had our choice, you know, if you had your choice, exactly how much suffering would you sprinkle into your life? <laughs> Zero. Zero. But suffering is good for us. The scriptures even use the analogy of how when you're a child, and your parents discipline you, there's suffering involved, there's nothing pleasant about it at the time, but after the fact, maybe years or even decades after the fact, you say, thank goodness they did that. Thank goodness I suffered that. Okay, so suffering, we already know, is good. 
And yet we deny that all the time, don't we? And we're constantly seeking a way out of suffering. That's a fascinating thing. It's, a, it's sort of a natural thing. But then we run into things in our lives that we actually, like, like elements or aspects of our lives that, that cause suffering, whether that's like chronic physical pain or whether it's uh, relationships that we're in that have, um, you know, been damaged, but there's no biblical way out. And so we find suffering psychologically. There's even suffering spiritually. Why isn't God answering my prayer? Why isn't he hearing me? Why doesn't he feel near to me? Why does he feel so distant and cold? There's all kinds of suffering. Now, what we immediately want to do is we immediately want to fix it. Because that's not, that's not good, we think. But again, we, go, we return to the premise, suffering can be good. So rather than seeking constantly a way out, a solution, a fix, it's much more productive for us to think, what, what does this mean? How do I understand this? How do I suffer? And what is God's purpose in my suffering? Here too, we're entirely too pragmatic, I think. Well, maybe he's causing me to suffer this so that um, I, can, I can minister to the, you know, may, maybe he's got me laid up in bed with a chronic illness so that when the, when the um, caretakers come into my home, I can witness to them. Okay, that may be true. I'm not going to discount that in the least. But we don't always need, nor do we always receive, some sort of tangible, practical, moral of the story, reason or defense for why it is we suffer. So here we see how the Bible fails as a self-help book because we go looking for help, we go looking for a way to get out of our suffering, and the Bible doesn't, doesn't say that we will. In fact, we might even turn to key places like like the Apostle Paul who prays three times that the thorn in the flesh would be removed from him, and we see God's answer is, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. We might even reflect a little more profoundly on our Lord in the garden, praying to the Lord, if it be thy will, take this cup from me, yet not, thy, not my will, but thy will be done. And there, there in, in the scriptures, we find not, not self-help, not therapy, not a way out of the suffering, but we find a way to understand and comprehend the suffering. The template and model of our Lord Jesus, the crucified one, the template and model of his apostles and church. And we find ourselves then, even in the midst of suffering we can't remove, again, physical, psychological, spiritual, but we find the strength and way to endure and understand on a much more profound level. Even so far as I confess that I do not understand, but I trust. Um, and that, and that, then, that then gives us a much, much deeper and accurate read of what the scriptures are doing in terms of taking away, taking away, um, you know, the, the, the part of suffering that leads us to despair. That at least is removed. The despair is removed because we find in our suffering Christ. We find in our suffering God. We find in our suffering meaning that has to be fetched out and indeed isn't fully realized this side of heaven.
Okay, so that's just one example of a problem that comes when we uh, diagnose our life superficially and then look for the Bible to be a, a quick and easy antidote to that, a self-help book. Um, it leads us it leads us very much astray and can in in acute circumstances leave us in complete despair this idea that the bible is just an instruction book okay instead it is as wolfmuller points out a book about jesus the central teaching of the scriptures is the forgiving death of jesus the blood of jesus we find on uh, virtually every page of the scriptures and that is a blood that cries out for us. Okay. Um, any reflections on that? I know it was kind of a tangent. Any reflections on that or any reflections on the text itself? And if not, we'll just carry on with page 49. That kind of goes back. Oh, one, one second. We, we've got to get you a microphone. And... That kind of reminds me of Job when he says, Though he slay me, I will still praise yeah. him and worship him. Yeah, and absolutely. Yeah, that's the part that amazes me. He's going through all this trial, especially when he's ranting back and forth in his so-called friends. Mm -hmm. Don't pick up on that. And then they're supposed to help him, and they're doing this. Yeah, and you remember, remember Paul's list in Romans where he says tribulation and famine and nakedness and sword and like basically everything you can possibly suffer, and then and then Paul's Paul's language there is really important. He says. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. So it is not it is not by escaping all of these things, by God getting us out of everything, you know, and then we have zero suffering our entire life and then we die peacefully in our bed. You know? <laughs> um, but that would that would be as bad as being a child who's never disciplined, who's never taught, who's never challenged to grow or learn or engage. Yeah, so that's a great point that the scriptures over and over show us God's works and his blessings to us always and ever in the midst of suffering. Now, please. Yeah, I was just going to say uh, it kind of fits in with my one of my pet peeves about American evangelicalism and the decisional aspect of their theology uh, that they're making a decision for Christ. Um, and and this is just a natural extension of that. Um, here's my self-help book, mm -hmm. and you know, uh, going along with that rather than I've been called and right. You know, Step one: make yeah. a decision for Jesus. Step two: pick up the instruction book and follow <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it, it it once you get off on the wrong step or the wrong trail or the wrong fork in the road i i think this just stuff flows mm -hmm. so yeah well exactly right and then it and, and again it it leads you into a place i don't mean to beat the drum once again but it leads you into a place where you go well my life isn't working yeah and i've i've tried to follow the instruction book <laughs> that's true I, was was this thing written in China? I don't, I don't you know. <laughs> Gosh. Instructions unclear. Nuked my life. Um, <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, that's the problem with this view is um, it ultimately leads you to despair of, well, I, I tried Christianity. I tried yeah. the Bible. It didn't work. Well, what does work mean? Take away all your problems? Yeah, well, that's exactly what it means. <laughs> okay, well, that's not what the Bible was designed for. Yeah. 
Thank you for that. Please. Just a little more expansion. I've often heard, okay, now I have Jesus. Now life's going to be wonderful. Nothing oh, yeah. bad's going to happen to me because I have Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, Jesus himself kind of indicates that that's not what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's much talk about sheep in the scriptures and becoming a sheep of the good shepherd. And then almost always with those texts about sheep is a mention of a wolf. Yeah. And if you already belong to the wolf, he's not after you all that much. He just kind of wants to keep you placated and happy. That, that's a lot of what's going on in the Western world is just here, have another, have another Tylenol, have another glass of wine, have another sitcom, uh, have another spectacle, uh, get, get outraged about what you're seeing on your screen, but nothing that's actually going on in, in life. Um, you know, just, just have, this, have this expression of the human emotions that actually don't go anywhere while being kind of comfortably numb and um, stay, stay uh, asleep. Stay asleep. And that's where the scriptures say, you know, awake, O sleeper. But Satan wants us to just stay asleep. If we do awaken to the light that is Christ, if we do become sheep of the good shepherd, then how does the devil view us? No longer placating, but rather saying, this is the way you want to go? Let me, let me show you what that's like. Wouldn't your life have been easier if you had never met Christ? Wouldn't your life be easier if you had never bought into this foolishness? I and mean, that's exactly what Satan does. And when you really look at the persecutions where they become extreme and acute and manifest in the history of the church, that's precisely the temp temptation. All you have to do is, is bend the knee and worship me. All your pain and suffering will be over. Yeah. Yeah. Please. Um, so how do we pray when we're suffering? Mm, great question. So, again, we have, we have the examples that I brought up earlier of Jesus in the garden, who's already in agony, who's already engaged in his passion, who's already sweating drops of blood. Um, we have the example of Paul. We have the example of uh, many others in Scripture, but I would just, for the sake of saving time, direct to the Psalms, where the Psalms, there are many, many Psalms of complaint, Psalms of lament, uh, Psalms in the midst of suffering. How long, O oh God? You know, etc. Um, and then the, uh, the good old standby, which really encompasses all of the Psalms and all of the Scriptures together, the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is, for my money, the single best prayer you can pray in the midst of suffering. So do we expect relief from the suffering that we are lamenting? Or... Um, no, we don't necessarily expect relief. We expect that God will do what's best for us. And we expect that he will give us the strength we need to endure in the faith um, through all trial, temptation, suffering, and need. So those are our expectations. Those are predicated upon God and who he is and his promises that he's made. Mm -hmm. um, relief may come. It may not. That's just, that's just a fact of this life. Uh, and it's a, but, but I think the key is, the key to enduring it is, to see it directly in relation to God. So, God, your hand is heavy upon me, the psalmist say. Your arrows have sunk into me, the psalmist say. There's a, in, in the kind of um, deistic worldview of American spirituality, there's this idea of like, Satan is the one who causes pain. God doesn't have anything to do with it. 
God, in fact, is far off distant, and Satan is the one who's afflicting me, okay? Now, if you embrace this as like your, your only view and your exclusive view, and this is just the way you're processing everything, then it's like, God, why won't you help? Why won't you hinder Satan? Why won't you do something here? And, we, then, and he's far off, and he's distant from it all. And I think that that, I think it's a very subtle, maybe it's a subtle difference, but it's a very major difference in terms of how one conceives of suffering and experiences suffering. The psalmists, the church fathers, the scriptures all teach us that, well, even if it is the devil, even if it is a horde of demons, even if it is human persecutors, who's allowing all of this to befall you? Who's setting the bounds and the limits? God. And so, so you need to pray right over their heads, right to God, and entrust yourself to him in the same way our Lord Jesus does. Now, why I think the Lord's Prayer is so impactful in terms of suffering, I'll maybe just point out a couple of things rather than go into too much detail. Maybe that could be a class on its own. The Lord's Prayer prayed in the midst of suffering. But the very first thing the Lord's Prayer does for you is, is contextualizes you properly to the cosmos. What are the first three petitions? Our Father who art in heaven, well, that's the introduction. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Who's the center? God and the things of God. So I'm not the center of the universe. I'm not, I'm not the sun and God, some distant Pluto out there not hearing me and, and the devil's nearby and, you know, influencing me. And, and here I am in the center wondering why these, uh, you know, these, these spiritual pawns in my life aren't doing what I need them to do. Um, the Lord's Prayer right off the bat contextualizes us. God is on the throne. He is in heaven. The, he is the center of the cosmos and I am his servant and I am happy to be his servant. And, and that, that in and of itself, is quite free because me and my pain aren't at the center of the cosmos. Christ and his salvation are. Then, of course, maybe the next most obvious point, um, in the, as we're praying that, we're praying, thy will be done. And in that prayer, we have the echo of Christ in the garden and Paul um, with his thorn in the flesh. We have that idea of, God, I trust you more than I trust myself. You know better what's good for me, then I know what's good for me. Into your hands I commend myself, thy will be done. And if it is your will that I suffer, I will aspire to suffer like Christ, my hero, my savior, who even though he was truly forsaken by you, was faithful to you under death, even though all the world hated him and persecuted him and murdered and shamed him, he loved them and laid down his life for them. I know that I can never fulfill and aspire toward the wholeness of this love, love embodied in my Savior Christ Jesus. But that's the template that you lay before me, and this is the worship that is acceptable in your sight. So, one more tangent, and I'm sorry if this is not interesting, but a frequent thing that, that I experience as a pastor is I go visit people who are suffering in a nursing home or a hospital for an extended stay or something, and just say, why does God still have me around? What is he doing? What is his purpose? And what's the point of all of this? Okay, well, we can recognize right away a sort of pragmatic spiritual lens, can't we? 
like, like I'm serving no purpose. I'm not a, I'm not a cog in the machine anymore. I'm not doing anything and my suffering isn't having any tangible benefit, etc. Okay. So the first thing we need to do is, is flush away that sort of pragmatic worldview. Okay. What does your suffering mean if there is no pragmatic value to it at all, but it's just you and God in this suffering? Okay. Hmm. That's, that's kind of an aspect of the cross, isn't it? Christ and his Father and the suffering. What does that suffering become? And the endurance of the faith and the endurance of the love of God in the midst of that suffering, what does that become? The highest expression of faith and the highest expression of worship imaginable. Do you know how easy it is to worship God when the birds are chirping and the sun is shining and the, the stock market's booming and, you know, your, your car's new and your house is freshly painted and everything's glorious? I mean, praise the Lord. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's it. And, but that's about it. That's about all the more we need him when things start really going good. Praise the Lord. Okay, that's it. On with my life. Um, but, but then, and, and, and of what value is that? Well, of some value, maybe. Um, but how much more precious is faith and endurance and praise in the midst of the flames, in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of the face that, that God, by all appearances, appears to be untrustworthy and unloving, and yet you hold to his word and to his promises, and you overcome these things by faith, and you offer the sacrifice of thanksgiving. This is partially what Paul means, what the scriptures mean, when we are to offer our, ourselves, our bodies, as living sacrifices, not only vocationally to our neighbor, but then in terms of our worship to God. So then the suffering becomes the, whether again, whether that's physical, psychological, spiritual, the suffering becomes the locus and indeed almost the, the content of our worship, of the sacrifice itself as we hold God and hold his promises in view despite everything to the contrary. Make sense? So there's meaning and purpose. Now, I mean, you, you're not going to get that with the Bible as basic instructions before leaving planet Earth. You're going to get that as, a, as the Bible about Jesus and about us being conformed into the image of Jesus, our sins forgiven and cleansed, and then the meaning and the purpose and the highest of all uh, just unimaginable honors, unimaginable honors, is that we beings made of clay would be formed into the image of the everlasting son of God and conformed into his image that we would be, we would become as he is now, not divine, but otherwise become as he is for all eternity. That's the glory and the honor set before us. So much so that Paul says these present sufferings aren't even worthy to be compared. Luther comments so beautifully on this. The first thing, this is Luther's hyperbole, but the first thing we'll say in heaven is, why wasn't I willing to suffer more? Why wasn't I willing to speak the truth more boldly? Why was I ever fearful at all? I wish that I could go back and be more bold and double down on Christianity and live entirely, no matter what the earthly consequences are, because I know, I know what is coming and I know what is eternity. Yeah. So I'm sorry to wax eloquent there, but I've got some thoughts in this wow. area. <laughs> guess it's on um i have so many thoughts um i think i was hung up on the not hung up but i was you know uh it hit me straight between the eyes the despair is the risk when we're in our suffering and i went my 
I went right to the nursing home, and I think you answered that. Uh, but if I could ask a question in that context, uh, you know, I look at life as a bathtub curve, curve upside down. We, we come into the world dependent on everyone around us, our family, for feeding and all the care, and we leave in a very similar way. And uh, But God gives us promises, and I would ask, here's my question, I guess. Uh, does God promise not to leave or forsake us, and doesn't he do this for those people in the nursing home by providing uh, love through others, mm-hmm. uh, care, and uh, and we're called to do that. And I know in my life, in the middle of my life, at the top of my bathtub curve, when I had very little suffering and I was producing, and I said, I would ask myself, you know, am I a Christian? Is God, is there enough suffering in my life? <laughs> and, uh, but I think that's the time when God calls you to serve and love one another. Yes. Jesus said, I give you another commandment. Now, Another question, I guess, is that when Jesus said, I was in jail and you didn't, you know, come visit me and, and you didn't give me food when I was hungry, is, is that talking about those believers that are suffering and we don't show mercy and care for them? Uh, mm. And so I think God provides for that to help us avoid the despair by showing love to those that are in that condition. So anyway, I'm, I rambled a little bit. Yeah, no, that's comment. very insightful. And I might pick up on the Matthew 25 language that Jesus uses. Now he's he's telling a he's telling a parable of sorts about his his coming, and uh, maybe that maybe better to say there's parabolic elements to it or symbolic elements to it because it's it's quite quite reflective of the true nature of his coming. But remember, he he divides the sheep from the goats right off the bat. Before there's any mention of what you did or didn't do for the least of these my brothers, they're already divided out. They're already separated between uh, believers on his right and unbelievers on his left. Now, to those on his right, he says, you know, whenever you, you know, you know, I was sick and you visited me and um, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. And they say, when did we uh, when did we do these things, Lord? You know, there's there's a bit of hyperbole there, or a bit of um, rhetoric there, because obviously, in hearing this story, we become aware of that, right? So, so there are some subtle aspects and components of that. But I think I think the key is the key is that Jesus would have us take away is that as we see others, other Christians suffering, and this particularly Christians in this instance, we see the suffering of Christ in them. Okay, so, so that's, a, that's Christ teaching us and calling us to view things differently, to view our brothers and sisters in Christ, in particular, all people in general, sure, but in particular brothers and sisters in Christ, as instantiations of Christ crucified. Right, and so to minister to him, to minister to them in just that way. Do you remember? I think it's in Luke's gospel. We're we're told. Correct me if I'm wrong, Baker, but I think we're told that as soon as Jesus was done with his temptation in the garden, um, his prayers in the garden, you know, before the the soldiers come and arrest him, an angel comes and ministers to him. You know, it's such a it's such a beautiful thing and so deep and profound. We could talk about different aspects of that, but but one aspect of that 
is that is that we're put into the role of that ministering angel to be able to see Christ crucified in our brothers and sisters and to minister and care. You know, that means you can't take away the pain or take away the burden. You can be there and you can minister and love and care for, right? Yeah, yeah, it's huge. And then the, the unbelievers, you know, the goats on the left, you know, they don't recognize Jesus. And so they don't do these things. Right, and so something's wrong with their eyes. They don't see Christ crucified um, in their in their brother, in their neighbor, or in Christians in particular in view here, and so they um, and so they they turn away from that. So it's uh yeah yeah I mean just to get away from some of the exegetical questions there in Matthew twenty five and just return more generically. Absolutely right, Barry. We're when we're given good health. Um, we want to use that, uh, again, physically, mentally, spiritually, we want to use that to the benefit and service of others. And then when we ourselves experience that suffering, maybe we'll be blessed to have that return to us, but we shouldn't count on that. And that's a spiritual trap that I've seen many people fall into. They pour themselves out for others, and then they're in their time of need, and, and in their perception, no one comes, and then they feel wretched, right? We don't, so we, while we want to pour ourselves out for others, we don't want to do so with the expectation that when we're in need, they're going to come for us. Our trust isn't in our brothers and sisters in Christ. Our trust is in Christ and God alone. And that's a really important way to uh, shore up our souls from that spiritual attack that can come. Did I see another? Oh, yes. Sorry. Yeah, please. I don't know that there's a clear answer to this question, but my heart was pierced when I read about Lawrence, a martyr in the third century, mm. who was roasted on a gridiron. Mm. And I think, I wonder if God gives a, an extra amount of grace, or maybe it's the ministering angels that come, but I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> I hope that if we're in that, that we get a little bit more grace, because mm -hmm. it was awful to think about. Yeah. Well, one thing that, you know, the wisdom of the church is that God gives us what we need when we need it. And when we have our our eyes set on him even in the midst of these things um, that that gives us his strength which is sufficient yeah yeah I think all the martyrs that's a very common theme is God gives them supernatural strength and ability uh, to endure that and and I think that most of the martyrs if you would have asked them ahead of time they would say I'm insufficient for it and that's what we all say and then God gives us what we need when we need it and by his grace, we're willing to endure. Yeah. Yeah. Please. Yes. I just have a quick question. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, as I hear about the suffering and I see what is going on and I see the strength of many churches, mm -hmm. um, talking about the rapture more and more and more, mm -hmm. if that's a connection between this American idea of avoiding the suffering and a possible rapture of yeah. the church. Right. Exactly right. Yeah, the problem with the doctrine of the rapture, as it's commonly taught in American Christianity, and I don't know for sure, it would not surprise me at all if we get to touch, yeah, I think we do, I think we're going to get to touch on that um, later in the text, but this idea of the rapture really is a brand new idea in the life of the church. I think it comes in at around the 19th century, and so anything that new can't be, can't be right. <laughs> so... Um, 
Yeah, you know, and we can we can do our exegetical work from the scriptures and dismiss this idea of the rapture. But I think you're exactly right that there's this really bizarre impulse that uh, that really fits American Christianity in general of life is good and with God it's only going to get better. And in fact, it's going to get so good that when things really get hot, he's going to just lift us out. Yeah, yeah. It's so in that sense, in that setting, it really bespeaks a very different spirituality, doesn't it? Yeah. Christians have a, um, Christians also, and this is less celebrated, but Christian soldiers have a long history of putting themselves in harm's way because they know their life is hidden with God in Christ Jesus. Um, Christians in the times of pandemics have a long history of putting themselves in harm's way because our life is hidden with God in Christ Jesus. Christians have a, a, a sort of a very quiet, not celebrated history because it's not as as glorious in hindsight as martyrdom and um, this kind of, of putting themselves in harm's way for the sake of others because they know their life is hidden with God in Christ Jesus. And so I think rather than seeking to escape, the Christian impulse would be like, Again, if we could, if, if like Luther, we were in heaven and opening our eyes for the first time, it's like, well, I wish that I would have done more. <laughs> I wish that I would have risked more. Um, you know, in that, in that spirit, in that vein, the Christian impulse would be like, wow, things are getting really, really bad there. That's where I want to be. That's where I want to be proclaiming Christ and suffering with Christ's people. And, you know, that's, I, I think that that's really an impulse we want to regain because it's a biblical impulse. Well, I have. Two thoughts. You always bring one more up. The first thought I have is that when I was experience, when I was experience extreme grief in my life, um, everybody was coming to me saying, "The devil, it's the devil," mm -hmm. and then other people would come and say, "It's God. He's testing you." That God wouldn't do something like this. Mm -hmm. And then I remember speaking to you and others and saying, "It's sin." And that's such an obscure thing. But sin didn't leave us when they left the garden. Mm -hmm. It just has grown and grown and grown and tentacles going out. And none of us escape that, mm -hmm. you know. And then sin has its own punishment. Mm -hmm. And um, But I have witnessed the life-giving um, comfort that Christ gives. Yeah. And when people say to you, why aren't you despairing, you know. Because you can't survive things like that without God. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And um, another thought is that you said Christians have always come up uh, during slavery. Christians were hiding people. And um, I think it's always quiet. And I think God always gives us the opportunity. He puts it in our way. We don't go out and seek it. It's just... Right. Right. Yeah, very, very frequently that's true. I mean, I think that there seems to be true. Yeah, well, there's certainly this aspect that we're not forced to go out and seek it. Christians can, of their own will, put themselves in harm way for the sake of others, but that's not like some kind of mandate. It's much more within your vocation as opportunity arises. And that's kind of the quiet aspect that I think the vast majority of Christians experience. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, your point reminded me of Job. I mean, to summarize the book of Job very quickly and maybe a little bit poorly, you've got Job's friends who are giving all the theological, theologically correct answers. You know, it's because you've got a hidden sin. That's why you're suffering. You know, it's the devil tormenting. You know, it's this, that, or the other thing. And Job, the whole way through, just like, no, 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 it's not. And then God shows up and um, 
He doesn't actually give Job the answer for why he's suffering. I love this. Um, this is a Peter Kraft um, out of Boston College, his, his insight. He says, God doesn't give Job the answer at the end. He condemns all the people who did try to give Job the answer. <laughs> and instead of giving Job the answer, he gives Job himself. That's, the, that's really how it concludes is, I am your God. I mean, this is such a profound point. I think it's true. I think it's what Job is telling us. This is such a profound point is we don't, not only do we not get the answers, but we don't need to get the answers because our incessant need to like make sense of everything and have every, is just the desire and the need to be gods ourselves. I mean, after you got that question answered, you would want what? The answer to another question, and another question, and another question. I mean, at a certain point, we just, like, the questioning is the problem. And, this, and the seeking for a justification for why this is happening, or a justification for God, like, that seeking in and of itself is the problem. To simply trust in God's goodness and trust that He is, is better than we are, and, and more loving and more gracious and more good than we are, that's the key. And then you can endure all things, and then you're in your proper place as creature of the Creator, and then you're set for eternity to receive from His good and gracious hands. And that, by the way, is what Ephesians, what Paul tells us in Ephesians. Eternal life is not this static thing. It's a continued outpouring and outflow of the gracious gifts of God that we receive from Him. And so all eternity is this dynamic, constant, continual receiving of God's goodness and God's gifts unto us. So anyway... Thank you for those comments. Made me reflect again on, on Job and that all-important teaching. Okay, and of course, Job, type of Christ. Type of Christ. Why am I suffering? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The right way to read Job is to look at Job as a foreshadowing, a prototype of Christ. All right. Well, we haven't got very far again, I'm sorry, but uh, I hope it's um, still been fruitful. Let's jump back into the text at page 49, and you see that kind of dark banner. Let's start there. Questions to bring to the scriptures, or what we expect to find in the Bible. In our reading, we often find what we are looking for. The questions we bring to the text determine what we take out of the text. If we look to the scriptures only for instructions for daily living, we will find what we are looking for, but we will miss the promises. We will be blind to the comfort. I know this. For years I read my Bible asking, what is God telling me to do today? This is the question American Christianity teaches us to ask. It is really the only question American Christianity knows how to ask. Ouch. But I think kind of true. The result of asking this question was a moral reading of the Bible. When I open up my old Bible, I find all the passages of instruction underlined. All the law passages are highlighted, but none of the passages of forgiveness and promise are marked. It's as if they were skipped over. I didn't know what to do with them. My Christian life was always about me, my actions, my thoughts, my love for God and neighbor, the strength of my faith, the depth of my sorrow. The Bible must be about the same things, right? The Bible as an instruction book also makes the Bible into a measuring stick. How am I doing? Am I living the Christian life? Was God happy with me today? 
Did I disappoint him or make him proud? This is a law reductionism that reads only commands and completely misses the promises. The trouble is, without the gospel, there are no good answers to these questions. If I think I've done well and accomplished all the things the Lord wanted, I am proud. <laughs> If I see my own failures, I despair. A gospelless reading of the scriptures puts us on the pendulum between pride and despair, swinging between the two, the two devastating poles of success and failure. And we recall that theme from earlier in the text, don't we? How the how when the law becomes central, we're always going between pride and despair. Sometimes very rapidly, sometimes more slowly, but that's what's available to us. Okay. In contrast to this, of course, he's putting forward then in these pages, page 50 and 51, um, that it is not the law that is central in the scriptures, but the gospel that is central. That is who God is and what he's done for us. The question that Wolfmuller wants us to replace, you know, that, that idea of um, what would God have me do today should be replaced with what is God teaching me about himself? Mm -hmm. And, and so that becomes the contrast. You can see that in the second paragraph from the bottom of page 50, the first line. What is God teaching me about himself? Let's just read a little ways into that paragraph. This question gives us a theological reading of the scriptures. This question helps bring out the truth of the scriptures and helps us see theological errors. In many ways, the theological reading of the scriptures needs to be recovered in the church today. American Christianity has developed a distaste for theology, an aversion to careful distinctions. Deeds, not creeds, is the rally cry. Which, ironically, is what? What is, uh, what is, the, what is the slogan, deeds, not creeds? That is a, a creed. So it's, so it's not getting away with creeds, it's just replacing the biblical creeds, the historical creeds, with a non-biblical, non-historical creed. <laughs> And what is, the, what is the essence of this creed? Deeds, not creeds, um, is the creed that says, throw out all the doctrines of the scriptures. Does that sound like a, a good creed for Christians? <laughs> no, not really. Not really. So, yeah, hidden there, deeds, not creeds, is, um, is really a pernicious doctrine and an evil and wicked creed. Um, so, deeds, not creeds, bad. Um, drop down to that next paragraph on 50. In fact, almost every book of the Bible was written to correct theological errors. It's true. It's good to zoom out on the scriptures and see how many of the letters of St. Paul or the other apostles are written specifically to address um, that question of, what am I supposed to do for God today? Or, what am I supposed to do with my own personal trials and troubles? Uh, there are, in fact, none that address those specific questions, but rather they address theological errors in the church that no doubt impact these other questions that we have, but down the line, down the line of the utmost importance is understanding what God teaches about himself. From that flows everything else in proper order. Okay, so just continuing with this point. Um, 
almost every book of the Bible was written to correct theological errors. We see this especially in Paul. He wrote his epistles because of the false teaching in the churches. He wrote to correct false doctrine as well as bad practice. The true prophets preached and wrote against the false prophets. If God were not interested in correcting false doctrine, we wouldn't have a Bible. Isn't that a great line? It's absolutely true. If doctrine doesn't matter, then why does basically every book of the Bible address false doctrine? The truth is because from teaching comes faith, and from faith comes life. So whatever we're taught, we believe, and then whatever we believe, we enact. And so if we ignore ignore teaching, then we just simply become subject to whatever whims we happen to fancy, and then our lives reflect that, waves being tossed to and fro. So what we need is doctrine. What we need is a theological reading of the Scriptures, a Christ-centered reading of the Scriptures. And doctrine is our friend. Dogma is our friend. These are good words. These are words that should fill us with joy. Um, precisely because what is meant by doctrine and dogma are teaching. Teaching of who? Of God, our Heavenly Father, who loves us and sent His Son to die for us. This is the wisdom He has for us. And from this wisdom flows all good things for us. So we want to recover doctrine as a good thing. And in fact, as something, if you had to pit it against doctrine and life, you would choose doctrine. You would, because from doctrine flows, uh, from doctrine flows what we need for life. Okay, let's, uh, let's carry on just a little further. Page 51, right up at the top. Doctrine is a strange word for American Christianity, but it is nothing other than the answer to Jesus' questions, who do people say that the Son of Man is, and who do you say that I am? Matthew 16. The knowledge of the truth, the knowledge of Jesus, is more than trivia. It is life. Jesus prays, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Our doctrine is our salvation. This might sound outlandish to anti-theological and anti-doctrinal American Christianity, but it is true. Paul writes to Timothy, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching doctrine. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. So you can see exactly then how Wolfmuller claims that doctrine is our salvation. It's just a summary of what Paul is saying here to Timothy. Wolfmiller continues, the scriptures warn us constantly about false teaching. In the Bible, the word beware is used only in regard to false doctrine. And then there are a whole slew of scriptural locations where you can find this. The work of distinguishing truth from error, distasteful as it might seem to us, is a good work that Jesus has given to his church. We read the scriptures asking, what does this teach me about God? We read the scriptures looking for 
teaching, looking for truth, looking for assertions and doctrines. The theological question, though, is not the last question. God gives the scriptures to us so that we would have hope, life, and comfort, so that we ask, where is the comfort? Okay, so here Wolf Mueller has given us his own perspective of, of two questions that would be that would be much better for us to ask. Okay, first question. What is God teaching me about himself? And second question, where is the comfort? Okay. So, rather than looking at the scriptures of like, well, what does this say to me about how I have to live? Rather, what is God teaching me about himself? And in what ways does this give me comfort? Yeah. Yeah. Now, from that, it's going to flow what? We love God because he first loved us. And so, in hearing about who he is and his teaching and his love for us and his Christ, then we desire to love him. If we don't have that first component, we're not going to have the second component. If we don't have doctrine, we're not going to have life. Um, as Wolf Mueller says, doctrine is life because it flows right into our lives and what we believe affects what we do. All right, and obviously, obviously then, Wolf Mueller goes to uh, set forward related questions. Where is the comfort? Where is the forgiveness of my sins? Where is my Savior Jesus? With these questions, the gospel shines through. Now, quoting Romans 15, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So, is the instruction here in Romans 15 about what I should do? No, the instruction is about who God is and what he has done. And then, through endurance, through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And we can simply drop down to the start of the next paragraph um, and see how Acts chapter 10 is quoted. To him, uh, capital H, this is Christ, to him all the prophets bear witness, that means the whole of the Old Testament scriptures, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And of course, we recall our Lord's words uh, to the Pharisees. You search the scriptures, for you think that in them you have life. It is they that testify of me. And so our Lord himself tells us that the scriptures are all about him. And so where is the comfort? Where is the forgiveness of my sins? Where is Jesus? That is uh, exactly the, the kinds of questions we want to be asking. All right, any thoughts, any thoughts there? We can turn over to page 52 where the next section is, and we'll just hit some high points here. Um, Wolf Mueller titles this, God's Word is Awesome. So he wants to add to in, inspired, inerrant, infallible, clear, sufficient, and efficacious. He wants to add awesome, which, yeah, fine with me. <laughs> okay, any thoughts on this section? Hopefully nothing terribly new here, um, but again, we can see a great contrast between American Christianity in general and um, this much more ancient, much more faithful and biblical way of, of looking at the text of Scripture and looking at our lives.
Okay, well, let's, um, let's just hit a couple high points here in this section. Very bottom paragraph of page 52. A strange thing happens when we delight in the scriptures. When we eat food, the more we eat, the more we are satisfied. We desire less. We all know that feeling of being stuffed after a big Thanksgiving meal. I can't eat another bite. When we are satisfied with food, we do not want to eat another bite. Satisfaction ends desire. The scriptures are the opposite. The more we hear, read, learn, and meditate on the scriptures, the more we want to hear, read, learn, and meditate on them. With the scriptures, satisfaction and desire belong together. Delighting and longing go together. When we delight in the scriptures, we can't get enough. The scriptures create in us a desire for more. Behold, I long for your precepts in your righteousness. Give me life. Psalm 119. Yeah, so Wolf Mueller's got this idea, and he introduces that. You can see it in the very big font on page 53, that there is a war over our delight. And Satan wants us to delight in things other than God's word. Um, God wants us to delight in his word. And so that's a, that's a major battle. And then Wolf Mueller points out an interesting dynamic that, positively speaking, um, the more we are into God's word, the more we want of it. The more we're eating God's word and tasting of God's word, the more we want. And the more we want, um, it, it's in the desiring that we find ourselves satisfied in the constant and continual consuming and eating, tasting, and seeing that the Lord is good. Um, we're just ever more satisfied and yet ever more hungry at the same time. It's this delightful thing in contrast to the human appetite, which at least for a time can be fulfilled. Now, the flip side of that, that positive statement that he makes of um, the, the more you're consuming and eating God's word, uh, the more you want, um, and the more you, you experience your hunger and how you long to be, to be filled, the opposite is, the, is, ironically, that when you don't desire God's word, when you're distant and far away from it, you feel full. You feel full. And you have less and less of a taste for it, and so that fullness increases. And you, and isn't it true? We've all experienced this firsthand, at, at least in seasons of our lives, where we've said, "Like I know enough, I'm sufficient, I'm satisfied, I've got that covered." <laughs> yeah, that's that's the spiritual disease of of believing ourselves to be full when, of course, we're starving to death. That's the truth. Um, I, I reflect on that line from the the Magnificat: "The rich he sends away empty." The hungry he fills with good things, the rich he sends, sends empty away. And isn't that true? And it's true as we approach the scriptures, we, true as we approach theology. If we say, God, that's enough, I've got enough, I'm done, I'm good, I'm backing off. Um, you know, the rich he sends empty away. Um, but when we desire, when we're empty, when we're hungry for his word, he fills us with good things. So, a beautiful, a beautiful thing here. And to delight in the, in the word of God, to delight in the things of God, um, this is, this is uh, I mean, uh, of the utmost importance for, for our enjoyment here in this life uh, and a foretaste of that great delight which is to come. He hinted at it in quoting from John um, that, uh, yeah, in the earlier section, that eternal life is to know God and the one whom he has sent. Eternal life is to know God and the one he has sent. So joy and the joy and delight of heaven is to know God. 
And insofar as we know him here, we are having a foretaste of that joy and delight. All right, let's, um, let's plan to pick up next week on page 54. And we're going to uh, look at how the scriptures never go the way we think they should go. They're constantly exciting and surprising. And then once we finish this uh, chapter, just a, just a couple pages, two and a half pages left, we're going to get into chapter three, which is, which is the substance. We'll move away from scripture and we'll move into the substance of the question of sin, original sin, actual sin, what, Amer uh, what American Christianity gets uh, wrong about that and what the scriptures actually teach. The Lord be with you. Hey, Pastor.